Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that asks if it really is all over for the Tories and what Labour needs to do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we take on the culture wars. Now, with not much else going for them at the moment, the Tories do seem to think that culture wars is a battleground on which they could inflict some damage on Labour. So should Labour be concerned and how should they respond to the challenge? Joining us this week, we have the co-founder of the Women's Equality Party, Catherine Mayer, writer Cinder Katwala, whose new book is titled How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War, and the journalist Helen Lewis, who was once deputy editor of The New Statesman and is now a staff writer at The Atlantic. So... Sam, I know you've got a bit of a bugbear. You hate the phrase culture wars. Yeah, I do. I don't like the phrase culture wars at all. And the the reason is that it conflates an awful lot of different issues under a phrase that is quite pejorative and dismissive, right? So I think there are lots of different kinds of stories that people use the phrase culture wars for. You have stories about real policy issues like immigration, like crime, where there is a sort of values element to those policy issues. So on immigration, there's a sort of... Uh, sort of liberal conception of fairness that's about compassion and welcoming people in and a conservative sense of fairness that's about security and just desserts. And those are both sort of competing values. So they can be sort of wrapped up in a a culture war bubble, even though there is a real issue with what's the right level of immigration for the country. You then got stories that are about identity and go to the sort of very heart of people's sort of sense of, of self and are real, so real conflicts of, of identity. The trans rights issue is an obvious uh, example of that, but also stories where you have sort of gay rights conflicting with faith rights and religious rights. And dismissing those kinds of stories as being culture war, I think is quite demeaning in a way to things that are actually really quite important to people and to their sense of self and identity. And then you have a third type of story, which are like really just really confected nonsense that politicians Meow. At, me, well, <laughs> politicians and, and media outlets use to get clicks, to distract from other stories they don't want to talk about in a really cynical way. And I think for those types of stories, it's fair enough to use the phrase culture wars. It's a bit pejorative because it is a very sort of cynical act. But it's very easy to sort of have that sort of sense of sort of frustration with with those stories and for that to bleach into the way we talk about things that really do matter to people on whether it's about identity whether it's about sort of policy issues like immigration so i feel this sort of term culture wars can actually do in many ways more harm than good i do take your point on that but i think it's sort of we are where we are on i mean i think it, no it's, i can't change the way people use language sadly sadly, sadly just i mean by myself. <laughs> just having a rant on the sofa <clears throat> yes. good rant a very good rant <laughs> felt another tiny hulk coming <laughs> <laughs> the tiny policy hulk is back 
also, I mean, like you are right, because I think, you know, the left is very comfortable on, on very hard, like kind of policy issues, which involves things like workers' rights and economics. But on anything cultural, they can feel quite sort of nervous about that. And then you have, as you say, the kind of batshit stories involving things like cats. And every time I think about that cat story... All I can think of is George Galloway going, shall I be the cat? <laughs> but like, this is a really good example because there's two different ways you could write that story. One is the, the clickbait, cynical way that a lot of media outlets have, have done, which is to sort of say children are identifying as animals and holograms and fridges or whatever. And it's just really silly. But people do kind of click on it because they like the being outraged by it in either direction that it exists or, uh, or, or that the stories are being written. But there's another story, which is what the teacher actually said in the class like firstly I should say I don't I really don't like the trend of children recording teachers in classes and getting little clips of audio being appearing out of context because that's a really bad trend TikTok is full of, sort of videos of bits of teacher audio and it's really unhelpful to the profession but if you look at what the teacher said you know they were making a quite serious point to the the pupil which I think was 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 incorrect and there's there's quite a lot of things you could discuss about the way the teacher framed that the way that schools are having to deal with incredibly difficult social problems that they're not set up to deal with but instead the story was all kids are identifying as animals but I think often what you find is and and sometimes you know if, if I do certain tv shows we often we go in on a completely the sort of hook is the kind of ridiculous you know, I'm a child identifying as a pigeon or whatever it is. But then once you kind of get past that sort of nonsense underneath it, there is a kernel of an issue that does need to be debated. And because that isn't really getting sorted out, absurdity comes in. So what we really want to get to in today's episode is is sort of where Labour are on these issues. And as you said at the, the, the top, yeah, there's there's a sense that the Tories are going to try and push culture war stories. If we're going to use that term, I will use that term, despite my disliking it. Um, we saw that happen in Australia. It wasn't very successful for Scott Morrison, but his campaign was very heavily sort of based around culture war stories. Uh, Labour won, ne- nevertheless. But there's a sort of feeling that it might be one of the last tools in the in the conservative toolbox for the campaign. There's a really interesting paradox about this, which I want to explore with our guests as well, which is that clearly this issue really does these issues really do interest people and engage people and they do matter a great deal to people because i mean that's why they get clicked on it's why the media write about them so much but at the same time if you look at you know the mori issue polls if you look at yougov issue polls what people we're going to vote on, none of this stuff appears. It's all economy, it's all health, immigration, climate. You know, you can go all the way down the list of issues before you get anywhere near uh, sort of concerns about wokeness or, or, or culture. How do we explain that paradox of the fact that it doesn't show up in the polling and yet clearly it does engage people a huge amount? I mean, I, I'm always slightly sceptical of the line that a lot of pollsters and indeed politicians put out, which says people just don't care about this stuff because they just care about the economy right now. I think people can hold different thoughts in their head. And I think one of the things which we will want to explore is how does Labour navigate this? Because it's the only big thing that the, the Tories have got left that they can really weaponise against Labour other than Liam Burns' note yes. and the fact that uh, Keir Starmer served in a Jeremy Corbyn shadow cabinet. And he was arrested for selling ice cream illegally. <laughs> oh, the monster. <laughs> He's a monster. So, you know, and also I hear a lot of Labour people say, oh, don't worry, don't worry, ignore it, ignore it because because of Australia. To which I'd say, I don't think you can ignore it because look at Scotland, you know, the, the, the gender recognition stuff is a really, really big problem for the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland. But we've got a fantastic set of guests who, you know, have done a lot of deep thinking on this. So I think we're going to have a great conversation. So do the culture wars give the Tories a chance of holding on to power or at least give the Tories a really big attack line against Labour? And how should Labour respond both now and if elected? Because these issues, these sort of clashes are not going to go away. We've got a fantastic group of guests to help 
unpick this topic. Joining us, we have the writer Sunda Katwala, whose new book is out now. It's called How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of the Country Can End Our Very British Culture War. He's also head of the think tank British Future, which has conducted loads of research into attitudes towards immigration and identity. And from 2003 to 2011, he was General Secretary of the Fabian Society. Sunda, welcome. Hi, great to be here. Also in the studio, we have Catherine Mayer. In 2015, Catherine founded the Women's Equality Party with Sandy Toxvig, winning their first seat at the local elections in 2019. Hello, Catherine. Hiya. And joining us down the line, we have the journalist and broadcaster Helen Lewis. Helen is a staff writer at The Atlantic, whose coverage of culture war issues saw her recently nominated for the Orwell Prize for Political Journalism. She's also the former deputy editor of The New Statesman and featured in the recently released podcast series, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Helen, hello. Hello. So, all of you, we're going to start with a quick-fire question. So, in a sentence, and we'll talk more about it as we go through the episode, how much trouble do you think culture war issues could cause Labour ahead of the general election? Sunda. Middling, I think. Um, There is a shift, I think, back to an age of economy from an age of identity. I think there are still lots of tripwires, lots of dangers there, but I don't think it's going to be the dominant fact of the political tectonic plates having shifted. Catherine? I agree with that, except insofar as Labour is already sounding inauthentic on these things and voters pick up on inauthenticity. Also, leadership should be about how to frame these debates in humane ways and actually reject most of the culture war framing and they're not doing it. You keep seeing them jumping into them. I think that's damaging. Helen? Far less than last time. I agree with Sunder that I think when you know people are really struggling to pay their mortgage or get to a food shop, then if the uh, you know if the papers are just full of people talking about penises, then I think that sort of begins to look slightly deranged, actually. So yeah, I think I'm hoping in a way that this this election will be more about you know who governs Britain and and is your life getting better or getting worse. Sunder, I mean you you've done a huge amount of work digging into this. We often have this debate about whether we're importing these kind of culture wars from America. What's your thoughts on that? I think we shouldn't import culture wars from America. And I think there are forces um, in progressive politics, forces in right-wing politics that can make it easier to do that. We share a language, um, we share the internet, um, and we know a lot about what's happening in America. And American society and British society are very different and increasingly different in their politics, but there are still influences and, and, and crossovers. So I think we've got a politics of identity in Britain, they've got a politics of identity in America. And theirs is the kind of polarised clash of identity that gets more and more binary that we should not want to have in Britain. But there are some dynamics, I think, in our media, political and social media culture that could that could bring that in, even if there's less public appetite for it. Because to me, it sort of feels that there are certain sections of, of politics that do want to sort of go down that route. I mean, in the Conservative Party, there are figures who do feel like they are trying to recreate some of the Republican playbook. For example, we know that Lee Anderson, the the deputy, one of the deputy chairs of the Conservative Party said, look, we will try and kind of fight this on culture war issues. I mean, Catherine, do you see much of that when you're sort of out and about door knocking for the Women's Equality Party? Do you start seeing any of that cut through on the doorstep? Yes. uh, When we co-founded the party in 2015, nobody asked about these issues on the doorstep. But you're also seeing it, you know, when you talk about important culture war issues, there is, for example, an anti-abortion group that back in those years was had an annual income around 100k and is now getting over a million. So when you talk about the importing of issues, I think you have to understand that this isn't something that just happens. Some of it is driven very deliberately, whether it's politicians deliberately sparking them, whether it's groups seeking advantage. Helen, you recently wrote a piece about the National Conservative Conference, and you talk about it in the piece about um, it being a very American 
feel of the of the event and there was a lot of American money behind it and there was a heavy sort of play on identity. Did you feel it was sort of made a success at trying to import that into into British politics? No, it was one of the most cheering things from my political perspective that I've seen for some time because in the US, NatCon attracts people like Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who is a you know second place currently in the Republican primaries for president, you know, very, very mainstream Republican politician. It's had Georgia Maloney um, of Italy speak there. But the people that it was attracting, with the exception of Michael Gove, who um, I think possibly even turned up and sort of slightly trolled it, actually. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a kind of particular fringe type of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Suella Braverman. I mean, you know, both of those are one in the, is in the cabinet, one has been in the cabinet. But both of them actually by attending it felt even more fringy than perhaps they had previously. And I think it was this overwhelming cavalcade of worries about the birth rates particularly that actually in the context of British politics just began to seem kind of quite sweaty and unpleasant, like the person <laughs> who you'd be trapped together in a party with that you'd kind of back away from slowly because they were a monomaniac. It didn't look like a kind of broad you know, uh, kind of swing voter. I mean, I just feel if you're going to talk to most swing voters or knock on the doorsteps, how many people on a doorstep are ever going to bring up birth rates to you? So if that's what you're just like dying to talk to them about, they are probably going to think you're a monomaniac. I think British Conservatives have got a right to contest cultural issues in Britain that come from the right. The reason they, it's not in their interest to get involved in this pan-transnational version is British Conservatives are going to be a lot less ethno-nationalist than European populist conservatism because there's more ethno-nationalist ground in uh, Poland, Hungary and Italy. And it's just going to be a lot less religious than America. And so if you've got those differences, you're going to have to come up with a, you know, a conservatism for Britain. I think the left, though, is very good at critiquing where the right is on cultural wars. And I think it's less good at working out what what it thinks itself. I'd agree with that. And a corrective, in a way, to what I said earlier is, of course, on abortion, there's a huge majority here across parties in favour of reproductive rights. Um, and there isn't that sort of religious fundamentalist drumbeat attacking it. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a concerted effort to change that. And flows of money are just important to watch, particularly because, of course, I mean, we know that laws on party funding are deeply imperfect at stopping money that shouldn't get to those destinations getting there. But even more so, these groups that ally themselves with certain factions within parties can get very big war chests outside that system. And we are seeing shifts in attitudes to what extent that plays across voters and to what extent this is um, in smaller circles of media, you are nevertheless seeing an emboldened media which is prosecuting hate, hatred. You know, you are, see you are seeing open homophobia in the media again. You're seeing attacks on certain groups in the media again. And these things are not easy to disentangle any more than we can necessarily predict that they won't have long-term effects in shifting public opinion, and that's why it matters. I mean, I, I, I don't know what you think about this, Helen. I mean, I think a lot of what Catherine says is right, but I don't think we've ever lived in a sort of halcyon time when the media hasn't been, like, not misogynist or sexist or racist or homophobic. Do you agree with Catherine, Helen, that the media are more irresponsible on these issues now than they've they've been in a long time. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a responsibility so much as just sheer volume of coverage and airtime to fill. You know, you are looking at, we've got now Talk TV and GB News, which although are technically registered by Ofcom, are very much, I would say, even see themselves as, you know, right-wing um, TV shows. And, you know, what do you do? You bring on talking heads. Now, do talking heads want to talk about GDP and the Gini coefficient and, you know, whatever else it might be in, in hardcore macroeconomics? No, of course they don't. What they want to do is talk about whether or not a kid identifies yeah. Cat, because it's a very well, it's a very easy issue that everyone can kind of have an opinion on and actually that story is a really good example i think of how the left really whiffs culture wars as well because fundamentally if you listen to the recording in that what happens is that the teacher tells the students that there are three sexes as male female and intersex now that is not how biologists would represent that that to you but there is a kind of like that you know that's the thing you've got to believe that and if you don't believe that you're deplorable and i think everybody wanted to have this like headline argument about cats without dealing with the fact about whether or not actually is the teaching of biology in our schools has it been kind of compromised by fashionable ideology so yeah what happens is you end up with endless hours of airtime that don't actually necessarily like people talk past each other 
about the talking points of their side. And and actually, even when you're doing culture wars, how often do you actually get the real issue that is the actual fundamental disagreement addressed? I agree. We we need to look at um, reframing. You know, it's there is literally no point in having these discussions in the framing as it is presented. But just to go back to Aisha's point quickly. It's not so much that the press is more irresponsible, it's that there have been all these different things happening at once. There is a huge weakness in some of the traditional media, which means that they ape what they think is going to be popular. They go for clickbait. There has been a polarisation reflected and prosecuted by that same media. And there is also this huge loss of trust in public institutions, in politics, whatever, and it goes with a kind of people believing everything and nothing. Mm. You know, no, nobody well, believes. Just, so, it, so, so, but that cat story was also a good example. You know, I would look at that cat story somewhat differently. I would say, isn't it interesting how long that cat story ran? How many supposedly respectable outlets ran it as... Uh, students now identifying as cats because but, that's not what the story was interesting, about. I mean, it reminds me when I was, and Helen will know this very well, Helen and I have spoken a lot about this when I was working on the Equality Act with Harriet Harman back in, in the day. And I remember that the right-wing press went absolutely nuts ab- about the Equality Act, but not the things that we're going nuts about now. It was about things like positive action because apparently no white man was ever going to be able to get a job. Um, Muslims were cancelling Christmas. And I remember off the back of that, this huge sort of sustained attack was sort of meted out in Harriet Harman, where they basically accused her of being a, of being a paedophile supporter, which ra- that story ran for such a long time. And it was really frightening to be in, in the centre of, of that story. I, I want to kind of move the conversation on to something that Helen just mentioned there, Sunder. We talk about the culture wars often through a lens of it's a very right-wing thing. What do you think sort of the left should take responsibility for for, for the culture wars? Well, I think I think everyone knows how to stop the culture wars, which is that people who don't agree with them should just shut up <laughs> so that their view can prevail. And so the left very much feels, you know, Dominic Cummings won a referendum. They're cooking up culture wars in Downing Street. Be kind. And, you know, go and talk to the Conservatives about this and they are utterly baffled that the left thinks the right starts culture wars and they will say things you just meet a member of the party they say it wasn't us that took a statue down dumped it in the sea and then said nobody should prosecute the people who did it it's not us that's starting these new debates and then the left will say oh you know but that's uh, that's progressive politics that's you know change and so on so so but this is this is one way in which i think you know what are we talking about the 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 accusation of being a culture warrior is obviously part of the part of the debate. It's where it's where the British debate, I think, is a bit more moderate and a bit more mainstream because the the cultural attitudes actually are, are, are narrower. I think in America and France, the culture war is more full on. If you look at a sort of Macron, Le Pen, Zemmour debate, it's kind of like you know, are the Muslims French? In Britain, I think the culture war is about proving the other side won't stop it. They are the culture warriors. We aren't. It's almost sort of form of culture war, sort of jujitsu. That's what I always say, Cinder. Is that else. you know, like the thing, the thing that the left kind of needs to acknowledge is that same saying is like, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic, right? Or people who go on holiday and they say this is it's terrible. It's full of tourists, and you're like, you, you too are a tourist. And I think that's the thing is the left needs to take ownership of the fact that it does want to change the culture of Britain. And actually, it has changed the culture of Britain. If you look at attitudes towards homosexuality from the 90s today, the number of people who think that gay relationships are always wrong has just plummeted. You know, that was a culture war. It's just we only use it in this pejorative way to mean kind of con- you know, media confections. Whereas actually, a big part of what any party should do is change social attitudes in the way that they think you know, it's fair and just and right. So I, I, I think sometimes it's Labour makes a mistake of running away from the culture wars, particularly if its own activists have a very fringe minority on popular position. There just needs to be a kind of sense that you can articulate a kind of big inclusive but progressive vision and you can kind of bring people along with you, right? That's the problem for the left is they worry they're going to get gotcha questions essentially from the right and end up, you know, with their fringiest activists saying something weird and wacko that is repellent to most voters. But the thing there is we are in an era of backlash and I don't think we should ignore that. I think, you know, you are seeing the conflation of paedophilia and trans, for example, at the moment. The point about gotcha questions, of course, is that they are not designed to create clarity but division. 
So I agree with Helen's point that the whole point of progressive politics is to create cultural change. One of the things activists forget, and particularly passionate activists, is that you need to bring people with you. Leadership is about saying these values are important and about rejecting the kinds of questions and framings that are actually reductive and are designed to create those sorts of, you know, ridiculous moments where, as Helen talked about, newspapers full of penises, I mean, studios full of penises, penises everywhere. Sunda, <coughs> yes. um, how, how do Labour manage that without sort of just backing off and running away from it, given that the, the sort of the, the way the questions are being framed is not necessarily helpful to creating that kind of inclusive argument? How do Labour sort of thread the needle on this? I think in terms of Labour's anxiety, It's partly because they think the choices are fight the culture war, concede the culture war issue or avoid it. And given those choices, they choose avoidance. But avoidance won't work because you'll be underprepared. Whether or not to have an asylum system or uphold the Refugee Convention is a a big issue, not a culture war. The clash on gender between trans rights and women's rights and what everybody thinks about that, that's a real issue. It might not be the number one issue, but it feels quite existential to lots of the people who Mm. are in it. Labour will be expected to have something to say about race in a country where, you know, Middle England is a lot more ethnically diverse, but it wants voters that feel different things about Black Lives Matter. So avoidance is sensible as in avoid the obvious traps, don't get pinned into being a caricature of the left that they don't think. And then concede is part of that as well. If they say we're a caricature, just say, actually, we just agree with most people. And none of that is doing what Catherine is talking about, which is which is thinking about how does a progressive politics of identity talk about identity, propose change and make change possible in a democracy. And this really is the kind of nub of the question and and the debate that we're having because fast forward to the short campaign when we're having lots of televised debates on things like GB News and, and Talk TV as well, Helen, and we all, each one of us in this room and on this recording knows that the sort of gotcha question will involve the word penis and woman. And Helen, how does Labour navigate this in a way, as Catherine and Sunda said, it's not kind of running away from the issue, but it's not falling into like a massive bear trap either? Although I'm, you know, am I the person to listen to on this? I think I've been saying what I think the answer is for about, it feels like about 10 years now and no one's paid the blindest bit of notice. But I think if you look at someone like Wes Streeting, he's getting towards it, which is to say, yeah, you know what, men and women are different. When we refer to men and women, most people know what we're talking about. Some people don't conform to those categories. They want to live as the other sex. We're a really tolerant country. Isn't that great that we can accept that and let people live their fullest, best lives? However, when there are conflicts, sometimes biological sex matters more than gender identity. Bish, bash, bosh, right? And I think, you know, I just think that's not actually that hard a situation to get to. It's just taken them a long route of trying to cycle through all the other answers that, you know, that don't ever wash uh, in order to reach it. And I think when you look at the situation that happened in Scotland to the SNP, you can see what the kind of downside of trying to appease your activists by essentially saying that there's no difference between men and women biologically. You end up in the situation Nicola Sturgeon did where she sort of implied that there were men, women and rapists and they were like in a special category. Um, And you could just tell by looking that some people were putting it on. And I think that, you know, that just that is just completely failed. That that line of argumentation has completely failed. But Labour has now got itself to a reasonably normal place on this. And, uh, and I think the thing I wish that they would do is continue to hammer home the idea that, yes, there are trans people in society, they exist, they have a right to be respected. However, women also exist and have a right to be respected. And those two groups both get to both get to talk and air their concerns. Because what happens really the story of the last 10 years is the idea that there is no debate is possible. You know, any debate is inherently transphobic. And it was just completely unsustainable. But I do think that I don't, I don't think Labour can swerve it, but I think it kind of comes back to what Sunder was saying in a way. I think the most that in the culture wars, what Labour should do is aim to be incredibly boring and just say things that everybody basically agrees with. Men and mm. women are different. Trans people exist. We're going to have to work through that. And um, it's, you know, and there'll be three people in the world who will be angry about that and will scream and will leave bottles of urine outside Labour headquarters. But basically everyone else thinks those things are true. Okay, Catherine, I mean, well, <laughs> so So, I mean, it's interesting because in... People would say that Helen and I are on opposite sides of the debate. I even reject that framing. I would say that um, 
all of us could find many more things that we agree on than that we don't. I don't agree with what she just said about what Labour should do or what people would feel about it. And I very much worry that the progress of one side at the expense of another, because gender critical feminism used to be actually a very small movement here and has sort of exploded and is winning the is winning the arguments in terms of change. I think that there have been casualties all along the way on both sides of that argument, vulnerable people being hurt. And one of the things that we really have to do is find ways to have debates in sensible ways. It's something that in the Women's Equality Party, we actually attempted very difficult situation. People feeling so passionate about these things that they did find it hard to be in a room, did find it hard to engage. But we ran a a kind of version of a citizen's assembly. And again, we reframed it, not to do this thing of kind of um, biological essentialism versus um, biology matters, because by the way, I'm opposed to biological essentialism, but I also believe that biology matters and the two things are not mutually exclusive. But to look at whether self-ID was in conflict with our policies, which is a way drier to Helen's point about being boring. I guess that's more boring. But it's also one that is an interesting question for politics more generally and for Labour specifically. We ended up at a position of being trans-inclusive but also reaffirming the exemptions under the Equalities Act for single-sex spaces. Now, some people would say that there are legal problems there. Well, that's something where that might well be tested by courts. You know, so there's a question of what's for politics and what's for the law. And for me, what politics should be about is about engendering a sense of the humanity and the consequences of playing this up for sort of cheap votes or cheap point scoring because people are getting hurt. Mm. I mean, as somebody who has obviously been very closely connected with the Labour Party for a long time and, and you know, my brief was was the equalities brief. I mean, having this conversation, Sunday, you and, and of course you've been part of the Fabian Society as well, there are really, really strong views on this within the, the Labour Party. And I think the Labour Party has always taken pride in the fact that, as Helen says, it's not just come in to sort of win power, it's come to shape society in terms of here are our Labour values about equality and fairness and justice. But this has been a really difficult issue for the party. Do you think that this is the sort of issue which could really get the party sort of tangled up, Keir Starmer particularly tangled up? I think the two most difficult issues for Labour are race and the trans and gender issues. And they're difficult in comparable ways and and they're also different. And so the trans and gender issue is is somewhat harder for many people or most people, partly because the salience is much higher now, but it's a much less familiar debate. And while the race debate is is difficult and challenging and shifts in each generation, there's a bedrock familiarity out there in society <laughs> between people who say it's not racist to say this and are saying something not racist about immigration and people who are hiding a bit of racism. People have got quite a good sort of smell test on where that boundary is, even if it's difficult to exactly get free speech right. And then this issue... Um, has emerged and people are quite scared of it. And, you know, if you're then in progressive civic society, you know some people on both sides. And there's another thing that is across those two issues, everyone, that progressive politics increasingly has a sort of stay in their, stay in your lane value, which is leave it to the people this is about. But maybe it's about lots of different people. It's unhelpful, for example, on, on race to think that progressive politics should have a stay in their lane issue. But you end up with people saying, where streeting mm. can do something about that. He's got some experience about sexuality. David Lammy can bridge on race. Well, it's all right for him. He's black. I couldn't do it. I'm white. Well, you want to govern our country. You're going to have to actually sort out, you know, whatever your gender or your race, you're going to have to sort out what you think is a principal position on these on these issues. So the answer is to do the work, have a space yeah. of meaningful dialogue that then makes it boring but if people are like i haven't been allowed to hear be heard and what that person wants to say that feels like an existential threat to me that's when it's a culture war when it feels like that and you've got to you've got to diffuse that work out where the boundary is on what is extreme and what is hate and what is 
difficult disagreement to work through. And look at the structural underpinnings of this, because a lot of the culture wars also, it's easy to create sort of panics, moral panics and otherwise around things when there is scarcity, when there's a scarcity in provision of services, you know, and, and also at times like this. I mean, this is, I say times like this, this is the most extraordinary political moment with a with a surging populism around the world and economic turbulence, you know, international turbulences. People are very scared. And this is a time when it is very, very easy to other, you know, to create fear of the other and to find victims. And you need to look at where the crunch points are, you know, I mean, on trans, one of the crunch points has been the provision of services for women, which are disastrously underfunded, in disastrously short supply. So it's, again, it's a very easy point to to jump into this. Helen, on one of the reasons I think the trans issue is so kind of is different from some of these other ones and so so uniquely uncomfortable for so many liberals is that it's is that it's an intra-liberal dispute in the way that a lot of these other things aren't. And it's sort of really riven liberal institutions, universities, sort of arts institutions, Royal Academy, places like that, in a way that some of these other disputes haven't. Um how do sort of liberals manage the fact that it is sort of it has that kind of intraliberal element in a way that other disputes don't, and how do you sort of uh, avoid sort of the line drifting into it, sort of becoming a, a sort of typical authoritarian liberal dispute, as we're sort of starting to see with sort of DeSantis in America and so on? How do we sort of maintain the boundaries around the dispute? Yeah, it's one of the things I think we've got a huge advantage over America in the sense that we are not operating in a uh, environment of incredibly punitive anti-LGBTQ laws, you know, uh, in the way that America really is. And that has kind of had a kind of rally around the flag kind of effect for liberals when they now don't want to hear any concerns about what the correct, you know, um, treatment plans for child gender medicine might be, for example, because it's just, you know, you just cannot give an, an inch at all because otherwise you're you're giving ground to DeSantis and Greg Abbott in Texas. So I think that's true. But I think what, um, what Sunder said is key, right, that actually the role of a political party is to hold a space for civic debate and for issues to be um, discussed in a, you know, and, and for a kind of, if not a consensus, then a settlement to be reached. And that's why I think that the trans debate has been uniquely poisonous, is that I lived through an era in which, you know, officially the new, you know, National Union of Students' official policy was no debate. Stonewall's official policy was no debate. Whilst at the same time asking for big, big policy changes that would have impacted really on pretty much everybody's lives, actually, certainly women's lives, um, not unique to transgender people. And so, I think that's the thing that has has helped in the last couple of years. You know, a couple of um, judgments that have ruled that gender critical beliefs are protected under law. That you kind of, you know, these are matters for for discussion. That are, you know, that reasonable people can disagree on the the fine details of it. So I think that is the kind of brave thing that Labour needs to do is say we need to, you know, we cannot impose this um, on people. We do need to allow the space for people to air their concerns. If people go too far, and as Catherine said, there are, there is what we kind of call groomer discourse, you know, there are some pretty unhealthy and unpleasant tropes flying around, then that is also the role of the Labour Party to crack down on that and not allow those in its bases. But in a way, I think the role of political party is to is to frame the kind of boundaries of acceptable debate and and try and get people of good faith who might have disagreements to try and work out those disagreements together. I mean, I could not agree more with that sentiment. And I do think that it's actually a really important function of the Labour Party as a genuine and it should be a good force for progressive politics in Britain. And I think it has been historically. And it takes me back to the situation we had when I was working as an advisor, when we saw the rise of Nigel Farage and we saw the rise of immigration being an issue. And we basically had a bit of a policy which we just decided not to talk about it. So whenever whenever we, you know, we had the Mrs Duffy incident that everybody remembers with Gordon Brown. But when we were briefing ministers as they were going out and about that the anti-EU sentiment was rising, when it came to talking about immigration, we basically had a policy which was we only talk about economic stuff around immigration. We just never, ever, ever talk 
about cultural things around immigration because anything about culture is bad and that is a scary space for us to be in. It's a bad space, so we leave it. And nature abhors a vacuum and what came into that vacuum? Of course, we saw the kind of UKIP, Farage and, and, and you know, then we're off to the to the wacky races. And I think this is another kind of really racism, <laughs> off to the wacky races and races. But now I, I think this is a really, really important point. I think we're all in quite a lot of agreement because I think the difficult thing about this as well is that there are really good people of good faith who care passionately about both sides of this argument. And the other point I wanted to raise is that I think Labour, for all its pride about equality and being progressive, Sunder, you and I both know very well, the Labour Party's done great things on race, but it hasn't got the best track record itself in terms of uh, promoting people of colour, for for example. Uh, we now have the Conservatives uh, with the first ethnic minority Prime Minister. The Conservatives have had two female leaders, the Labour Party. I sometimes wonder, and I wanted to get your take on this, I sometimes think that the Labour Party quite likes to sort of, and its activists quite like to sort of posture these big rows about progressive causes but sometimes it does also mask the fact that the Labour Party could do better on the I mean to me it's unbelievable that it's only until recently the NEC the National Executive Committee for the first time has just elected a black man on on race I mean the Labour Party had the trust of Britain's ethnic minorities you know about two-thirds of them most of the time for the last 50 years so it was the party of anti-racism when it when it started. It's got a pretty strong record at some levels. The parliamentary Labour Party is one-fifth ethnic minority, much more than the country. It doesn't have a monopoly anymore. The Conservatives have a leadership. The Conservatives are going to project their leadership more. I think Labour has a view that its Black and Asian MPs are community representatives more than national leaders. So that's a more backward thing. But actually, the only thing in progressive politics that is as diverse as Britain is the Parliamentary Labour Party. And then they always have plans to make the Parliamentary Labour Party more diverse. Well, what about the special advisers? What about the council groups? What about the party itself in the areas um, that it's trying to represent? If you could broaden the ethnic basis, the social class basis of the Labour Party in places, you wouldn't have a group of people all with university degrees in a room talking about what the people not in the room want from the Labour Party. I remember it well from my days of being a special advisor. And that's why you don't know how to talk about immigration because you're sort of saying, well, we all love it, but they don't. So, you know, your legitimate concerns, everyone, we must come and respect them, but there's no one here with those concerns. Can anyone guess what what, what those issues might be? I met a man once. Yeah, and you you become very... bad at it. So I think I think race is getting harder um, for Labour because, you know, race is becoming more complex in society. And I, I worry about this. Isn't... I worry about this. Like, if you're not black, if you're not Asian, if you're not yeah. mixed race, we, you, you don't have a legitimate view. I think we've got to get rid of that. But also, in certain parts of the Labour base and the Labour activists, there is very, very strong views on, on race, which the leadership is absolutely nowhere near those views. I mean, how does Labour kind of navigate that stuff on on race, which which I think is actually going to be quite difficult for Labour. What Labour should have, any institution that wants to govern the country as a party, but national government should have it, local government should have it, it should have proper engagement with ethnic minority citizens and white citizens around the country at the school gate and the sixth forms. The stories that are told to you about race in the Labour Party by white liberals, by black people on the left, by Asian people on centre-left or whatever, they're all anecdotal. The party doesn't do proper research, proper data. It always assumes that black and Asian mixed-race people see their lives through the lens of race. And some people do because that's their experience of policing or education. Quite a lot of people don't as well and don't really want a political party to say, you know, come and join us, join the BAME sections. That's the one for you. And the Labour Party doesn't really have that, I think, nuance on the lived experience of race in Britain in the 2020s. And also, you know, if Labour was better at these things, you know, there was a high watermark, quite frankly, with you and Harriet, Aisha, you know, the Equalities Act, all sorts of stuff. And and Labour has overall been better for women than the other parties. But sometimes it's been better for women because it's done policies which have, for example, lifted people out of poverty. And that, of course, helps women because it has done, uh, you know, the Sure Start, for example, which helped women, but was actually aimed at, at children. And the point about this is that Labour could be better at all of these things. It could be better at looking at the beam in its own eye 
than it is. And one of the main reasons that Sandy and I started the Women's Equality Party was because we felt that Labour needed a bit of a kick up the bum on some of this. And, you know, we were looking at these brilliant women in Labour and we were looking at them not becoming leader. We were looking at the Tories producing female leaders for for what it has proven worth. And we were also aware of, for example, various times where different interest groups within Labour would be um, seen to be in conflict. So, for example, you can't talk about race and women at the same time. Well, of course you bloody can. And so in that sense, this is something that Labour needs to recognise its own weaknesses. Sunder's points are very good about if you look at local councils, for example. Representation on local councils is still terrible. It's still terrible for women as well. And I would also say that some of the panic around trans has been caused by a general failure to move things forward for women and a habit of sending women to the back of the queue, which then means if people begin to debate what kind of women, they then are sort of going, oh, well, these these are getting preferential treatment and these aren't. On sort of Labour's inability to practice what it preaches on, on women and, and gender, there was a briefing in, in the Times, I think it was this morning, or one of the newspapers was saying that Labour felt their sort of aggressive attack ad on Sunak had worked and they're going to play dirty in the election. And you could sort of feel the testosterone coming <laughs> off the page. There's a sort of real sense within the Labour machine at the moment that it's very going back to being quite macho, very male approach to politics. And of course, you know, all the candidates for the by-elections, the raft of by-elections, We've, we've got coming up a male. They've still got this issue with never having had a, a, a male leader. Helen, female. Why, sorry, female leader. They definitely <laughs> had male leaders. Um, Helen, why do you think they have so much of a problem with sort of practicing what they preach on this? Well, I think uh, not to be rude about the Fabians um, when you're there, Sunder, but I think if you look back to the Fabians and they're quite kind of like, why did they get, why did the Fabians approve of eugenics, right? They had this sort of patrician view of the world in which that, you know, the working classes were breeding too much and needed to be saved from themselves. And to some extent, a strain of that kind of patrician paternalism still persists, which I think is what Sunder was talking about. The idea that a group of kind of white university educated spads sit around in a room and decide, you know, what's good for the other people. But they, they don't want to necessarily hear from the other people because the other people might talk in you know language that isn't the approved language or they might have blunter views than you kind of you might think so I think there's some of that I also think that to some extent it's harder as a minority or a woman to kind of make it to the top in in the Labour Party because you can in the Conservative Party present yourself as a kind of exception you know and and you know like I'm not arguing that all women need to kind of be raised I'm just an exceptional woman I think is a kind of an argument that makes more more sense. Um, And, you know, also there are other cross currents as well that we don't really talk about. You know, the fact that the trade union leadership is still male dominated, even though the average trade unionist is something like a 43 year old woman. Um, And the fact that, you know, women get sort of systematically written out of the Labour story. We had the death this week of Margaret Madonna, who was absolutely key to um, building that new Labour victory in 1997, as was Angie Hunter, as as was Mo Molum involved in the Good Friday Agreement. But Asia, you'll know this. I remember Harriet Harman tells the story about how she decided to write her memoir after looking through all the New Labour memoirs and not finding herself in the index, <laughs> which, is, which yeah. is a kind of like brilliantly kind of honest story about the fact that she just felt that women's contributions weren't sufficiently valued in the Labour Party. And I think that still persists. Well, I mean, one of the things which is extraordinary when, when you see what Harriet has achieved even recently when she was first acting leader and when she was acting leader for the second time I did have male MPs come to me and say do you think she's really up to to, to doing this do you think we should try and get like Alistair should we ask Alistair Darling if he's like around and or, or should we just try and get like another older man to sort of you know and remember Harriet Harman didn't put herself forward for the leadership because she sort of believed she wasn't good enough you know even Harriet with all her confidence and you know fierce sort of feminism so the Labour movement just to I mean on the trade union movement that is a very fair point Helen though it is interesting that they are starting to shift you know you've got Christina McEnany who is the head of Unison which is the UK's largest trade union Sharon Graham at Unite as well but the the culture is still very bro definitely Sundar I think I think you had a very macho culture in 97, but there was an electoral imperative to get women in. And she had women arriving Bless in numbers babes. for the first time. And oh, you know, they God. weren't they weren't doing that on race. They actually have four new black and Asian MPs out of a couple of hundred. Sociologically, and I think progressives can miss this, sociologically that 97 moment did shift the 
electoral sociology and politics of gender. And so the Conservatives, having been the party of women most of the time since universal suffrage, now Labour is. Well, one and of my favourite struggles, stats... Labour struggles <laughs> with, with men. And there's an education and a who goes to work and you know all sorts of things going on. But Labour's doing tremendously well with women. Well, one of my um, favourite stats in, in this 1996, there were more uh, MPs called John than there were women. 1996. I mean, it's like, that's not very long ago. So there has been... Oh, you'll find that in, if uh, you look in at 20... boards... Yeah, yeah. Helen's oh, going to say the in, same in, thing still as true well, I'm going to say, like, now, in, yeah. no, in, uh, but in, in 2010, there were more men in the cabinet called David than women in the cabinet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's wow. still like, you've made some progress, but there's still... And it's but, still 35% um, of women and overall of MPs. So there's still... But that's 50-50 Labour and it's a quarter of the You're still using positive discrimination measures to stay at 50-50, but the, has it shifted the culture? Yeah, I think the culture shift probably does come through in the generation because a 50-50 party has to start. To but you see, like you, see you also see, though, the struggles in terms of shifting culture around Pestminster and responses mm, yeah. to, mm. to harassment and, you know, that there... Um, and and back by the way on on the trade unions that the legacy of a culture in which men actually opposed equal pay for women because they thought it would hurt them still plays through. Mm. Um, you know these things are very deep rooted. So you know we were talking earlier about culture wars, in a sense being something positive that you should actually as a political party push for shifts in culture. Well, one of the key shifts in culture you have to look for is a system, I mean, you can start right with an electoral system that disadvantages outsiders, it disadvantages people of colour, it disadvantages women, and then look for a political system in which there is a real inclusivity, which means that people not only are represented in it, but they're represented in the back rooms too, and their voices are heard and and given equal weight. Well, I mean, one of the things I've written about a lot and I did a whole stand-up show about it is that there is the parliamentary party which is incredibly important in any political party because they are your troops there is the people you elevate to leadership and they are really really important because they are absolute front of house they're the shop window for the kind of Britain you want to lead and then there is the power behind the throne, which is incredibly important in politics. These are the people who are in the room. They are really, they've got more power than most people in the cabinet or the shadow cabinet. They're making the key decisions about policy, message, culture within a party. They're incredibly important. And, you know, I think we could all agree that things are, are moving slowly. There are, I think, more women around Keir Starmer. And it does have to say Rachel Reeves is an incredibly important figure. And I don't think there's ever been a woman as powerful in terms of the money. And she would be the first woman chancellor. We're just conscious of time. There's a couple of questions I'm sure Sam and I would well, like I'd, to get I'd, I'd love to get onto patriotism, obviously, because Sunder's just had his, his, his book out um, on this topic. And it's a subject that Labour have really found difficult at times in the past. And certainly there's a lot of people on the left who get quite uncomfortable with sort of overt use of patriotism in, in, in politics. Give us a sort of precy, the thesis of, of how you think that patriotism can help resolve some of these challenges for Labour. Well, it's really obvious that identity can divide us and that gives you the avoidance instinct. And the answer is to engage with identity. All politics is about identity at different levels, local identity, different identities. People have national identity as well. You've got to find a way of putting that together. The patriotism question for a centre-left party, at one level, it's really, really simple. Nobody's ever governed a country if they're not confident about its symbols, its national symbols, its national identity. It happens to be the case the Labour Party does not win very many general elections in British history. The Times, it's done very, very well. It's had a really strong sense of what it's got to say about the national story. 1945 sees Labour at its most patriotic, now win the peace. The 1950s sees Wilson's modernisation. It's a, here's a story about where Britain goes next. New Labour in its own way is doing a kind of a change in the culture of where we're going. Has Labour got that sense of where it sits in the culture? You know, it stands for sort of competence and 
being sensible and being grown up and so on. I think when what doesn't work is to just tell us stories about why it's difficult for the left um, or, <laughs> or to make great speeches about what is patriotism. I think a lot of what it is... What about standing just how, in front of flags all the time? I mean, the, the, the idea it's odd to stand in front of flags is, is bizarre. I mean, I find you pictures of Keir Hardy with a flag as well as Atlee Wilson and so on. So, I mean, the idea there's a frisson about it, but it should just be normal. You should just be able to, you know, whether it's the whether it's remembrance or it's, you know, the jubilee might be complicated if you're not in favour of that kind of thing, the monarchy, but most people are. You know, the birthday of the NHS, we marking the anniversary of Windrush. Just, just turn up and talk about the identity. That It's important that we've got things in this country the NHS is one, monarchy is another. Um, BBC is actually very important that that actually belong to people across the political and social tribes. That is what is missing in America. You've got two groups of 30, 40% of the country just watching a different narrative every night. So it really matters that, uh, you know, that these institutions exist. There should be a sort of patriotic defence of the BBC as much as a sort of hyper-progressive one, I think. Helen, how do you think Labour can use patriotism? I mean, something you've written about for, for The Atlantic. Yeah, I've been writing about um, Gareth Southgate's Dear England letter from June 2021 because the new play at the National Theatre kind of riffs on it. And I think it's really interesting what he does. I mean, he he's fulfilling Sunder's brief, right, of being a, a white guy who has spoken a lot about racism. You know, he's managing a team that's full of young black and mixed race men and has therefore made being you know very clear about the fact that racism is unacceptable and that his team face you know racist chants and racist commentary in the press but he starts off that letter by talking about his grandfather's service in world war ii which is a kind of right coded thing you know support for the military support for veterans has traditionally always been seen as this very right-leaning thing but you're right like one of the things that does make it that 45 victory interesting and, and all the way through to labor in the 70s is that it had people who'd fought in the second world war you know they had been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for their country so it was a lot harder to kind of question their, their patriotism and what I thought was really smart about that is I always think Labour does well when it uses kind of soft C, small C conservative language to talk about its own values. Like it talks about fairness. You know, when it talks about the Windrush, for example, you know, people came here, they built lives here, they worked really hard and we should have done better by them, I think is the way that you talk about that issue if you're, if you're Labour. So you're kind of borrowing the clothes of, of these kind of conservative values to advance progressive ideals. Now, the problem is that that tends to upset your activists who want something a bit more stirring and blood curdling. But I think when you're a party that really struggles to get into power, then you should really try and try and, you know, tailor your language to the country that kind of exists really in you're trying to win in right now. Catherine, your thoughts on patriotism and where the Labour Party should pitch itself on that? Well, it isn't uncomplicated, not least given the the factor of a disuniting kingdom and the desire and very real possibility for Labour to make gains in Scotland that wouldn't have been possible until recently, and that being pretty core to Labour's success. So it's not like it's a a straightforward thing of standing in front of a particular flag with all of the colours there on every occasion. Or maybe it is, you know, maybe I'm wrong on that. But also to the point, you know, this goes back to an earlier part of the discussion and something you said, Aisha, about what happens with a vacuum. When Labour was avoiding some of the discussions that it didn't know how to deal with in terms of race and in terms of immigration, some of the worst sound bites and one of the ones that Labour will of course never live down is British jobs for British workers. And you have to have a kind of positive narrative of the country instead of ever falling into that trap. So the, you know, Helen's point about Gareth Southgate managing to subvert, if you like, those right wing divisive tropes in order to create a kind of unifying message is clearly what Labour should be trying to do, but it's not it's not easy and it's not uncomplicated. Sundid I'm always struck by that line that Gordon Brown got absolutely rinsed for British jobs for British workers. What's so bad about that line? Were you were you really offended by that line? Because that's what kind of what Keir Starmer is saying now. Is that a bad line? It was overperforming. It was trying too hard. It also wasn't Gordon Brown's policy. I mean, Gordon Brown's policy was actually British workers for British jobs, that he wanted to skill people up so they could compete for the jobs. He wasn't a protectionist and so on. But he felt he needed a slogan that sounded like the kind of slogan that people he didn't know or have a feel for would like and so and it had happened with that 
it all happened quite of, soon after the Mrs. Go, Duffy you know, thing. Yeah. And there was and sort the, of an overcorrection. It was, it, the BNP yeah. had used the phrase. Yeah. And that's why it was so but, toxic, I think. It was just, yeah. But, you know, Labour thought it had to have mugs saying controls on immigration. And then some people are very upset about it. But nobody knew what Labour was saying about immigration. What, what Labour's policy is, you know, control immigration fairly. That's, that's what we Labour did. We had a piece of pottery. Yeah. That was our policy. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. had a very bad piece of a, pottery. And then you have a row about that with the left. So it's, um, that is a product of a lack of confidence about your ability to say what you think about an issue in a way that can bridge. So that's the case against avoidance. It's all very difficult to talk about the easy stuff. You've got to make the principled case for bridging. It's yes. got the progressive story in and then has respect for the kind of disagreement you should respect and boundaries against the kind of hate that you shouldn't. I, I agree with all that, but at some point... And I think that bridging is incredibly important, but at some point the leadership has to make a decision about what it thinks. So right? what, what's missing is the case for not having a culture war, but not saying because this stuff doesn't matter, not having culture war because all of this stuff really matters and we'll actually get on with it, listen to voices, have policies on race, sexuality, trans rights, etc. and other things because that's where I think the Liberal Centre is a bit off-piste and sort of saying it will all go away, keep your heads down, <laughs> yeah. we're not America. Nobody cares. Everyone does care. I mean, it's ridiculous to say the Liberal yeah. left doesn't care about identity. Of course, of course they do. Yeah, I mean, there's a real, this interesting paradox of all this is that people do care. I and mean, that's why the media write about it so much, because it does get engagement and clicks and interest from people. But at the same time, if you look at sort of issues, sort of salience lists in terms of sort of what's the most important issue and how you'll vote, it doesn't come up very much at all. So there's a sort of odd disconnect between the fact very clearly people do care about this stuff and find it very interesting. And they, they don't say they're going to vote on it. It doesn't say they're going the, to, that, that it's going to affect their voting behaviour. But the Labour membership does care about it. <laughs> mm. Progress activists care about it. There is a big difference between what the Labour membership looks like and what the wider voting public looks like. And they're trying to square a circle and they don't always know how to do it. We Coming to the end of the episode, we, we could talk about this for a very long time because there's so many different issues that are all intertwined and Labour have a lot of different challenges in the area. But we are going to try and sum it up in the question we ask all our guests at the end of the episode, whether Labour are are meeting the power test at the moment, whether they are doing the right things to get elected and then to sort of manage these issues when in power if they do win. So I will start with Sunder. Um, not really, I think. I think they will get through the they will get through the campaign by kind of avoiding and engaging where they have to. I don't think they've done the work that a government needs to do on these issues. Helen? I think it's tricky. I'm more bullish than I think anybody else because I think what we're getting is probably another year's worth of, oh, it's all on a knife edge because no one wants to say, well, this party's 20 points ahead. Um, <laughs> this is all looking like we should probably all just go home and check in six weeks before the election. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, there is a lot of kind of weird, oh, Keir Starmer needs to articulate a vision. And you're like, really? Because we're still quite a long way out from an election. What you mean is I, a columnist, would like to have something to write about. <laughs> <laughs> um, could, don't give, he, don't give send it all the press away, Helen. <laughs> Helen. So, no, I, I, so I agree with Sandra in one sense in that I don't think if you put Labour into power now, they would necessarily prosper. I think they're doing a lot of the boring stuff behind the scenes, right? They're getting in briefings from people who've been in power before, right, from the people at parties past, which was a big problem during the Corbyn era was that just anybody who'd been in a new Labour government was basically an untouchable that you couldn't listen to. So they are going through a very boring behind the scenes process of kind of skilling up into being able to manage those departments. I think on um, gender, they've come an incredibly long way to a position that says there has to be a compromise um, and I think they are getting better at being able to shut down the kind of gotcha questions on that I'm more worried about them in terms of the stop the boats rhetoric like Rishi Sunak always looks broadly unconvincing when he tries to do sort of thunderous populism but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be something that will be thrown at Labour all the way through the campaign and I don't think as yet I have a sense of what their desired level of immigration you know ability to manage integration all of that stuff that's where I think they're currently failing the power test. So, so for me, Keir Starmer and Labour are failing the power test on this, both on the specifics of culture wars where they keep being bounced into really ill thought through answers and allowing the agenda to be set by media, which is not interested in fomenting real discussions on this, but also much more generally. I know they're hugely ahead in the polls. Even though I'm the president of the Women's Equality Party, I am trying to work for a Labour victory because a Labour-led government is the only alternative to the terrible and damaging one we've got at the moment. 
Am I inspired by anything? No. Do I think that parties win just by not being as bad as the others? Sometimes, but it's not enough. And, you know, Helen's right. Yes, there are all sorts of briefings going on. I'm very aware of a lot of those, but I'm also aware of how little listening's going on, how very narrow the, the range of voices they're listening to. And to me, that means a government that will only be better by not being the one that's in power now, which, let's face it, is the lowest bar it's possible to be. Well, on that positive note, um, <laughs> thanks very much to all of our guests, uh, Cinder Katwala, Helen Lewis, Catherine Mayer. Really, really appreciate that discussion. So, Aisha, I thought that was an extremely interesting discussion um, with people who you know, do have some different views on some of these issues, but we managed to to keep it uh, extremely mature and uh, engaged. What, what did you make of it? I thought it was a brilliant discussion. And look, I think we should be really honest with our listeners. We were quite nervous about doing this episode because a lot of these issues are so divisive. They're really explosive. People feel really passionately about them. There are different views. And sometimes it's quite hard to actually have an honest sort of searching conversation about this stuff. And I thought there were some differences of opinions, but it was a really illuminating, interesting discussion. And I think... There is quite a broad consensus about an end game. So what I think I take away from it is I sort of agree very much with what Sunda said. I think Labour's sort of doing the minimum it needs to do to sort of pass the first bit of the power test to win the election. So they're going to try and neutralise this, particularly around the, the transgender rights issue and some race issues. They're going to try and sort of keep their head in the, in the sand a bit and have quite a defensive position. But for me, the big question is if Labour does win power, these issues aren't going to go away. These are really difficult issues. You can't dismiss culture war issues as they just don't matter. They're as central to people, for a lot of people, as you know, economics are really important in, in their life, but you know who they are, their sense of identity, their values are really important as well. So I think for me, the big question that Labour has to do a lot of thinking about is when Labour comes into power, if it comes into power, how does it try and reset these conversations? How does it sort of take the lead in terms of building these bridges between very divided groups in society, all inflamed by social media and a lot of posturing and virtue signalling? How do you try and have better conversations? How do you have better consensus? And ultimately, you do have to take decisions and sometimes you're going to disappoint people. But you've, you've got a better chance of landing in the right place if you are prepared to have better conversations. And I think that's what Labour's got to really think about what would be terrible is if Labour thinks that because they have just sort of hidden away from these difficult issues to cross the line that they can carry on doing that. Yeah and I think that, that I've kind of changed my mind a bit on this like listening to our guests listening to, to you about it because I think from an electoral point of view the safety first strategy will work but there is a leadership role that they're currently abdicating I think both Sunda and Catherine kind of made that point and you can kind of get away with it now but in government that's going to be much harder and 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 they're allowing the whole discussion to be dominated by the loudest voices the most extreme polarizing voices whereas government should have a role in finding that middle ground which is huge like nearly everybody's actually you know has a lot in common on a lot of these issues and, and if you get them in a room will find agreement and they have a role in sort of turning it into that kind of discussion so this is a really important topic and it's a really difficult topic for the Labour Party and for the left to navigate. So very, very keen to hear your views. All views welcome and let the abuse um, begin. <laughs> um, if you get any abuse, do send it to Sam Freeman directly. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Can you not ask our listeners to send me abuse? <laughs> Um, no, you can get in contact with us. You can tweet us at The Power Test or you can get in touch with either of us directly. Uh, you can email us at pod at thepowertest.co.uk. And you can also become a founding member. Membership gets you ad-free episodes before anyone else, an exclusive opportunity to become part of our community and even more benefits and bonuses. You just head over to our Substack to look for your options. Your help in supporting us make this podcast is hugely appreciated. So next week, we're taking a short break, but join us again in two weeks when we're going to be looking at devolving power. 
Is devolution going to be a vote winner for Labour and will it help bring about a better Britain? We will see you then.